In this episode of Between the Lines, Priya Raghavan, postdoctoral researcher in the IDS Governance Cluster, interviews Nikki Falkoff, Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Witwatersrand, South Africa. Priya is part of the IDS project Sustaining Power for Women's Rights, which works with women's movements in South Asia to study and help develop strategies against backlash. Nikki is co-editor of the book Intimacy and Injury in the wake of Me Too in India and South Africa. Through the lens of the Me Too movement, this book and podcast tracks histories of feminists organising in both countries, while also revealing how newer strategies extended or limited these struggles. Intimacy and Injury is a timely mapping of a shifting political field around gender-based violence in the global South. This book and podcast is essential reading and listening for all studying and researching gender issues, especially in relation to questions of gendered violence. Welcome to this episode of the Between the Lines podcast, recorded in commemoration of 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, an annual international campaign between the 25th of November and 10th December. I'm Priya Raghavan, a postdoctoral researcher at IDS, and today I will be talking to Professor Nikki Falkov, one of the co-editors of Intimacy and Injury in the wake of Me Too in India and South Africa, published by Manchester University Press. Intimacy and Injury is a timely mapping of the shifting political field around gender-based violence in the global South and builds on transnational feminist knowledge and solidarity in and across the South. Welcome, Professor Falkov, and thanks so much for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit um, about the background and context from which this book emerged? Um, what did you feel was missing in conversations around Me Too and gender-based violence at the point of its writing that you wanted to address through the book? Um, yes, absolutely, Priya. I mean, I'll, I'll get to this in a sec. The book did emerge from a workshop uh, held at Pitts University, which I will speak about in a bit. But I think, you know, to answer your main question, I, I want to start off by actually quoting from the introduction that I wrote with my co-editors, where we, we, we write about um, the kinds of complexities that are often elided from transnational discussions of India and South Africa. These complexities being the grey zones of sexual violence, the tensions within feminism, and the limited space for marginalised genders and sexualities. So I think really for us, you know, one of the impetuses behind writing this book or rather editing this book, putting this book together was the sense that, you know, the Me Too movement led to a sort of global explosion in discussion about GBV, about femicide, about sexual violence, about feminism, about women's resistance. But these conversations, as these conversations often do, tended to focus overwhelmingly on the global north, on feminisms in the global north with the south as is so common, just kind of dismissed as the place where all this bad stuff happens, you know, the site of sexual violence that needs to then be dealt with by comparatively high profile white or whitened feminists from the global north. And, you know, we really felt that the, the Me Too moment did open up a lot of possibility for discussion, possibility for conversation, possibility for contestation. And, you know, we kind of wanted to resist some of what it was doing. We wanted to resist this idea that suddenly this movement for uh, this movement against gender-based violence had swept the world. And that was this huge thing that had made all sorts of important and significant differences to various places around the world by looking at these transnational contexts and going, hang on, what is what is me to miss? 
you know, what does it miss out on? What does it do in these places, but also really significantly, what does it fail to do? What is it not capable of doing? And what happens when something like Me Too, in effect, sucks all the air out of the room? Right. What happens to indigenous feminisms, localized feminisms, small scale feminisms that actually do really significant, really valuable work encountering the effects of things like GBV in, in contexts like ours? So I think we were really we were really driven by this historical moment when lots of people were suddenly talking about things that they hadn't talked about that much before, but also by the sense that these things were somehow new. And we, we wanted to resist the idea of the newness. We wanted to resist the idea that Me Too somehow just arrived in India and South Africa and changed the face of activism against gender-based violence, because that's really not the case at all. Thanks, Nikki. You make a very compelling case for, for thinking about the prehistories of Me Too, um, especially from the global south. But it would be great to hear a little more about the particular focus on India and South Africa. So what makes it important or interesting to think from these two sites alongside each other in terms of gender-based violence? Thinking about, you know, why we chose to do this book about India and South Africa. I mean, the first thing, of course, that one has to acknowledge is that, you know, in scholarly work, <laughs> as in a lot of work, decisions that we make are often contingent right? Especially people who do the kind of work that, that my colleagues and I do, where you do, you work on issues of race, of gender. You know, the funding model is often not as generous as we need it to be. It's often very difficult to do certain types of work. So the shape that this book took was very much based on um, a project called Governing Intimacies, which was hosted at my university, the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, and funded by an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation grant, very generous grant. And that's that project was run um, by my by my co-editor Sri Leroy, who is an Indian scholar who works in South Africa and has also worked in the UK. So when she put together a workshop on aftermaths of Me Too, obviously the people that the, the the context that she knows the best, the context that we had the most access to, were India and South Africa. So from a purely practical position, it made loads of sense for us to look at these two these two countries and go, what is going on in these places? We could just as easily have done a book that was comparative of, say, South Africa and Mexico, another country that's notorious for issues of gender-based violence. You know, it's not that there's something so specific and so particular and so awful and so dangerous about India and South Africa that these two places need to be highlighted. You know, I think it's important to emphasize that these are these are problematics that we see around the globe. It's not that India and South Africa are the only places that face these issues. And so, yes, our decision to look at these two contexts was based partly on the fact that these were places we had access to, but also from a conceptual point of view, you know, India and South Africa um, are interesting because they both hold particular places in the global imagination, right? They're very much global South places. They're very much global South contexts, but they're not um, just dismissed as sites of poverty and war and destitution. They're also places that contain a degree of glamour, some sense of development, some sense of newness. You know, they connote different things within the way that the world landscape, the world map is drawn, particularly within globalized mass media. They also, however, both have the reputation of being quote unquote rape capitals of the world. So you have these two places that in, in certain ways are kind of glamorous and almost 
aspirational in comparison to a lot of other locations in the global south. But then they also have these enormous and very well-deserved, let's not kid, well-deserved reputations for violence, for misogyny, um, for severely problematic gender-based issues. So that makes it very interesting to put them into conversation. And it also, what's also really interesting about both of these locations is that they both have powerful, long-standing, important and influential traditions of localized feminism, right? In both these countries, you have a long history of women standing up and achieving and attaining certain things outside the strict boundaries of the state. So for those reasons alone, you know, I think it makes India and South Africa a fruitful locations for examining how we think about GBV today in the global south and how we think about a movement like Me Too. They're also both very heavily mediatized places. And this for me as a media scholar, of course, is, is really quite significant. The fact that both of these countries have enormous and powerful internal media industries, and they also appear in globalized media specifically. You know, as, as bad as the global north is about news coverage of the global south, two places that you can reliably assume will pop up if anything really serious happens are India and South Africa. So, you know, in, in the book, there is a chapter about these two paradigmatic femicides and rapes that happened in, in India and in South Africa of Jyoti Singh in Delhi and Anin Voisins in Bradarsdorp in the Western Cape in South Africa. And, you know, these were both pretty horrific deaths. Both of these deaths made international news, right? And that does not very often happen with the murders of women in global South locations that are known for femicide. And as bad as these murders were, the same types of crimes happening in places that had less global attention upon them would have gone unnoticed. So that as well, the fact that both India and South Africa play a role in a specific global imagining of the South, I think makes them very, very useful ways to consider arguments that perhaps could and should be applied more broadly. Thanks, Nikki. And I think there's something really quite unique about how the book both recognizes and contests this global circulation of uh, India and South Africa's rape capitals. Mm. Um, and part of how it does that is, is really through this attentiveness to the long histories of struggle against GBV um, in both these contexts. Um, but as you're mentioning, they're also both highly mediatized and there is immense local mm. and global scrutiny on specific cases of especially rape and, and femicide in both contexts. But I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the silences and erasures around Me Too that contributions to this book pick up on. It's such an interesting question, and I think such a significant question. And, you know, some of the silences and erasures of Me Too that I think our contributors picked up on really beautifully and really powerfully are not necessarily silences and erasures that only apply to the global south or even to India and South Africa. You know, I think that our contributors um, used their localized lenses to really point out effectively some of the larger failings of Me Too. And of course, they're far from the first people to do this. But the fact that, you know, Me Too as a movement, as an idea, was kickstarted by an African-American activist named Tarana Burke, we all know this now, but that it, it only got any real global attention once it was tweeted out by a very famous white celebrity, Alyssa Milano. And that, for, you know, for the beginning, in the, in the first few months 
of its kind of very public life. It was assumed to be something that Alyssa Milano and Rose McGowan and other wealthy, well-known, thin, successful white American stars had brought to public attention. You know, that really, really does show some of the initial problematics of a, a hashtagable, a clicktivist movement like this, you know, being assumed to be something international. So, you know, failures, silences, erasures, they, they never seem to be much space within that initial um, explosion of the Me Too movement for women of color in the global north who had to, as they, as they often tend to do, had to fight for their place within this particular white feminist modality. I mean, Alison, Alison Phipps's book, Me Not You, which is also published by Manchester UP, it just does amazing work on this, on the kind of inherent, what she calls political whiteness of a lot of the Me Too movement. But in the context of India and South Africa, you know, this, I suppose, intersectional, this, this failure of intersectionality becomes even more potent. In the context of India, you have the, you have the erasure of Dalit women from Me Too, which manifested largely as a kind of a, a, a upper middle class movement in many ways, centered around educational institutions that were to some extent or another elite, regardless of who they actually allow into their student bodies. In South Africa, you know, the, the kind of, the movements around GBV that predated and happened around the same time as Me Too made a point of focusing incredibly powerfully on the bodies of black women who had been left out of this conversation to such an extent globally. You know, we, there, there, are, there are silences and erasures and absences of migrant women in South Africa, um, Af African women from other African countries who often just are completely absent from this discourse. Sex workers are so often left out of stories around Me Too, left out of stories around GBV as though, you know, to use Nelson Maldonado Torres's phraseology as though sex workers like colonized women are just always inherently rapeable. They're always available. There's no way in which we can think of them this way. And then, you know, of course, really powerfully, I think two of the contributions in the book, um, Louise Dutoys and Jamil Khan's speak about the, the complete and total absence of men, you know, Queer bodies are left out of Me Too discourse. Trans bodies are left out of Me Too discourse, but so are male bodies and male bodies are also available to rape. You know, there's been a lot of conversation recently in South Africa about, um, about the age at which young men lose their virginity and how often young men lose their virginity to older women and the way in which this is framed not as sexual assault not as statutory rape but this is framed as an achievement an attainment of manhood and you know then we look at the rates of gbv that we have and we wonder why we have this generation of men who see sex as an as as, as an assault sex is a way of claiming power and status you know these are the things that me too overlooked and that mainstream narratives around gender-based violence tend to continue to overlook. And I think that, you know, seeing seeing these erasures for what they are can possibly help us to start thinking about why mainstream conversations around sexual violence are not really helping. They're not really working in the way we need them to. Thanks, Vicky. I, I actually want to spend a little bit more time on this really important question of intersectionality, uh, because the book and everything you've spoken about so far is quite striking and express in its insistence on thinking intersectionally. Um, so can you tell us about how the book approaches the question of intersectionality methodologically and conceptually, 
and also some of the successful ways in which movements in India and South Africa have embraced the intersectional impetus? I think the answer to that question is 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 quite short, really, and quite straightforward. Um, I don't think it is possible to talk about South Africa without talking about race. And I don't think it is possible to talk about India without talking about caste, right? Any attempt to talk about gender or violence or inequality or other social justice issues in either of these contexts without mentioning those fundamental structuring principles mm-hmm. is an attempt that's, that's doomed to failure. You know, there was a lot of talk in South Africa after 94. I, I've been discussing this recently with a really quite brilliant PhD student who's grappling with the race class nexus and talking about middle class women in Johannesburg. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk among certain types of scholars about how race is no longer an issue, race is over. Now it's all about class. And, you know, I can see the logic behind that because we, of course, no longer have legalized racial segregation but if you yeah if you go to if you go to the malls and you go to the gated communities and you go to the north of Joburg where the where the wealth is concentrated you will see a hell of a lot of black people and a hell of a lot of white people and a hell of a lot of Indian people and people of all sorts of other ethnicities and people from all over the world and the continent and that's great then you go to a squatter camp where the poorest of the poor live and there will be very 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 few people who are not black and that makes it abundantly clear that the claim that class has trumped race just does not fly. It just doesn't fly if the majority of the poor are still racialized in a very, very specific way. And, you know, we can make similar comments about India. You know, it's, it's you cannot say that caste is over just because there are there are quotas that allow certain types of people into universities. If those, if those people get into universities, but then do not get jobs, or if those people get into universities and then find themselves, you know, working at fancy institutions in the global North where they're still experiencing the kind of upper caste prejudice that they grew up with back home, then we cannot say that the class has not trumped caste. We cannot say the caste is no longer relevant. So, you know, I don't think it's possible to do an analysis of either of these places that is not intersectional. I also want to push back slightly on the idea that these analyses need to be thought of as intersectional. Um, again, this is not to undermine the incredibly important scholarly work that's been done on intersectionality, which has been powerful and influential, particularly coming from African-American feminists. But I think that this kind of analysis was being done in these places long before we had the term intersectionality. Right. I think that feminists in India and South Africa have been thinking through issues like class and caste, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully for a really, really long time. They have been acknowledging these issues for a long time. So we need to also be aware that there there is a potential problematic in defining them by these kind of these very, very powerful, far traveling scholarly terminologies that emerge from influential scholarship in the global north because once again that suggests that we in the south didn't really think about these things until someone gave us the vocabulary and that's really not the case so you know thinking about um how feminist movements in in these countries may embrace ideas of intersectionality you know i mean i they have always been they're always in south african feminism they've always been kind of racialized problematics of white women and white saviorism. This has always been something. There's also been incredibly powerful feminist movements, um, you know, led and populated by white women like the Black Sash, 
who, who were an anti-apartheid movement. And I'm sure that there were all sorts of critiques of the work that they did that I'm just not familiar with. But what I think is important is that Black feminist movements in South Africa have always been working class movements, right? Black feminist movements, while they, a lot of their leaders may have been elite women who were educated, and it was not that common for Black women to be able to be educated during apartheid. Um, you know, a lot of these women emerged from kind of the ANC hierarchies, but nonetheless, the people on the ground of feminist movements in this country have, have always been the working class. The women who burnt their passes were the working class. The women who used their positions as domestic workers to undermine apartheid's influx control rules that kept black people out of cities, they were domestic workers. You know, there's there's always been a kind of an intersectional way of approaching women's organizing. We also, to the best of my knowledge in South Africa, I have never encountered a black feminist movement that has had any vague hint of the kind of, you know, the terminology now people are using is gender critical, that kind of gender critical idea where sex workers have been kept out of a movement or queer women have been kept out of a movement or trans women have been kept out of a movement or femmes, non-binary people have been kept out of a movement. In my experience of black feminist political organizing in South Africa, it has always been wildly inclusive and that predates people talking about trans people in the way that we talk about them now. It predates the kind of language that we have for that. So I think that there's something to be said for a feminism that emerges from the ground up rather than a feminism that emerges within the academy and is then disseminated outwards. And there may be a case to be made for the fact that these ground up feminisms are fundamentally always going to be more quote unquote intersectional than perhaps a more intellectual feminism that trickles down from an, an educated elite because there's, that's how you build solidarity. So yeah, you know, to come back to your original question, I think that something we can think of as intersectionality or something we can call intersectionality is baked into any kind of leftist progressive politics in either of these countries often it gets um, co-opted and abused and made into a kind of populist problematic that doesn't really help the issues at hand. But nonetheless, I think fundamentally on the ground and at base, feminist organizing in India and South Africa has always had to have some awareness of the fact that there are multiple types of womanhood. I think that's a fascinating and really important point you make there in terms of not only me too having prehistories in these contexts of long feminist struggle against sexual violence, but also intersectionality having prehistories uh, long before the coin, the term was coined or, or um, saw the sort of purchase it is now gaining, especially in, in Western academia. Um, and I think that, that this idea of the prehistory of intersectionality also maps onto another prehistory I'd like to hear a little more about, which is thinking of resistance against sexual violence outside of the state as a key site of redress, um, because that also seems to be um, a type of dynamic that unites these two contexts. And Jyotsna Siddharth's reflection in your book, in fact, traces how the state often mirrors the behavior of the patriarchal predator. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about modes of protest that fall outside of um, what the book calls the archive of GBV in our parts of the world, that the book also seeks to highlight as, as alternative modes of protest and redress? It's so, it's interesting that you ask about, you know, protest outside 
the state or kind of resistance outside the state. And I mean, this isn't directly related to your question, but it makes me think of all those very, very earnest and well-meaning rallies that happened in the US after the election of Trump, where women were knitting, you know, pink pussy hats and going on marches. And of course, you know, the first question that popped into my mind was, whose vagina is this? It's pink, guys. It's like those, <laughs> those flesh-colored crayons you used to get when you were a kid that were pink. I'm like, really? don't know I mean that did take me a while to figure out but yeah um and the kind of the anger and the rage that all of those those very very well-meaning white American feminists were expressing because they suddenly realized they could no longer trust the state to have their best interests at heart and how horrified people seemed they were like right the government is not on our side and it just it really made me it really made me step back and think about how much feminist organizing here in South Africa at least tends to assume that the government is not on our side mm. you know that's not to denigrate the laws the laws laws around gender and, and, and legal judicial formal structures around gender in South Africa are fantastic they are really really good they are really strong and you know we can be incredibly proud of our ethical and fairly uncorruptible judiciary however the application of these laws is, is just a complete joke. You know, I think we, we talk about this in the introduction to the book as well, about the, the rape trial of former President Jacob Zuma. And I think that was really a seismic moment where it made it very clear to a lot of women, to a lot of, of feminist organizers, to a lot of activists, that the state might write the most wonderfully progressive laws into the statute books imaginable. But when it came to it, the state would protect powerful men. To the point of, you know, someone who, who had been incredibly accused of raping the young daughter of, of a friend of his, that this person ended up becoming our state president, and that the ANC Women's League was one of his most powerful supporters, and that, you know, women across the country and supposedly progressive organizations like the ANC supported him so strongly because there is a point at which gender. <laughs> gender solidarity disintegrates. And, you know, I think it is actually Shireen Hassim, who is a wonderful South African feminist, amazing scholar of, of politics and the law, who wrote about how um, during the struggle against apartheid, women were often being told by their male comrades, listen, we, we can't deal with this now. <laughs> you know, we can't deal with your issues now. We need to, we need to focus on ending white supremacy. We need to focus on freeing the people. Women's issues are a secondary issue and they will come later. And I think this has always been something that has faced progressive movements. Um, it's always been something that's been very familiar to women, not of course just in South Africa or just in India. And it does mean that there needs to be some sort of extra uh, instant, uh, response to GBV, response to issues of gender outside of institutions, whether those institutions are struggle movements, protest movements, or the governments that they end up becoming. So I think, you know, we talk about the archives of GBV in India and South Africa, and what we mean by that is that, again, how resistance and feminism in these places are kind of located, spoken about, written about, often folks focuses on legal challenges, often focuses on things that relate specifically to the state. And one of the things that we really wanted to do with this book is show that there are other forms of work. There are other forms of labor. It's not just work within the state 
or work within NGOs, right? Because that is an extremely developmental gaze upon India and South Africa that, that suggests that the only thing that's interesting or valid about these places is how they work within recognizable structures. So putting the book together, we really wanted to have some work that did something else, which is why, you know, we, we included work like, for example, Swati Aurora, who talks about, um, her, her chapter is called Fugitive Aesthetics. Um, and she does really wonderful work on, on theatre, on performance. You know, we have people writing about artists. We have people writing about poets. And this is very specific because, you know, you often find that, again, global media conversations around countries like this, when they talk about hard political issues, are only interested in structures that manifest within states and institutions, right? We as Indians and South Africans are, you know, in inverted commas, allowed to have art, but we're not allowed to have political art. So it was really important to us to point out to the book's readership that resistance is not just organizing, resistance is not just marching, resistance is also writing and sharing and living and you know creating community in ways that the state does not recognize, does not see as legitimate, but nonetheless that help us find ways creative ways to resist the state's kind of ongoing, you know, ineffectual failures and lack of care for issues of gender, notwithstanding its its judicial attempts at, at some sort of justice. Thanks, Nikki. I think, again, part of what the book does so brilliantly um, is it's really illustrative of how the post-colonial feminist posture towards the state and its in instruments are um, quite often a good deal more cynical than in other parts of the world. And there's a lot to be learned from that. Um, yes, actually, that's a really good way of putting it. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so relatedly, I was wondering if you could think through with us what some of the main challenges you see as confronting feminist organizing against sexual violence in South Africa and India right now. Oh, okay, once again, I'm going to talk mostly about South Africa because it is the context that I know best. Um, and this is a horrible question to answer because I have to say, I think the main the main challenge to this kind of organization is that, you know, people don't care. We've had a, every, I can say this every year, every year in South Africa is a bad year for GBV. Every year in South Africa. I have a master's student at the moment who's writing a, a project about a three-month period in one year where three really high-profile murders happened of women and he's talking about just those three murders within that three-month period that were spectacularized cases and you know you could do that in any three months of any year in South Africa but this year we've had first there was um it was a mass gang rape of eight young women in a town called Krugerstorp they were on a they were in a little area they were filming a they were filming a music video and the music video set was overrun and they were attacked by a large group of men. And, you know, the, it was pretty shocking, of course, and pretty horrific. What was what, what added to the shock and the horror was the chief of police, um, our, our, our police minister, I think he's called, uh, Becky Kriele, um, released a statement afterwards talking about how lucky one of the victims had been because she only got raped by one person, not by 10 or 11 people. You know, and then, then the story just vanished after that. I've I've been talking about it incessantly with my students, young female students who keep coming back to it. But that story just happened and then went. And then just a few weeks ago, it was revealed that the 
mutilated and decomposing bodies of six sex workers had been found in a building in Johannesburg. And they know who did it already. There was barely any media coverage at all. If this had happened somewhere else, they would have been outraged. They would be, you know, they'd be making, they'd be making Netflix documentaries about this serial killer already. In South Africa, the murder of six sex workers goes almost unremarked. You know, it's, it's barely noticed. That is what organizers are dealing with. You know, there is, there are so many cases and so many instances and media coverage of course is contingent on what sort of victims we're talking about and what else is happening in the news. There is no way, you know, not to entirely blame the media establishment. There's no way that every single murder could get the coverage that it needs and deserves. But of course that leads to an ongoing sense of exhaustion, but there's also, you know, we're, we're in a country where patriarchal norms are almost unquestioned ideas about what men should be, you know, how we should, how, how men should behave, how we should raise men. We're living in a country with endemic long-term poverty problems. We're living in a country with issues with alcoholism and other types of dependence. You know, there are so many structural problems leading to GBV and sexual campaigners against sexual assault, campaigners against sexual violence are facing just a wall of apathy. You know, it's, it's very, very dispiriting. And it's also really uplifting the way that people keep on going and they keep on fighting and they keep on working. But as I said, when we were talking about the state, you know, this apathy is on every level. Individual men do not, are not responsibilized to take this on board in any way. The schooling system is letting us down in, in so many different ways at the moment. Um, and so we, we're not depending on the education system to assist in any way. There's no kind of social science push to understand why these things happen. Instead, there is a kind of a, there are these upsurges of sensationalist hysteria every time there's a really bad case where people start talking again and again about the death penalty or about castration. And these are not helpful reactions. So, you know, I think, yeah, I think in this context, at least what the big challenges that people are facing that people are having to overcome is a lack of political will, um, an enormous amount of apathy towards the deaths or violent experiences of women, um, failing infrastructure, failing criminal infrastructure, criminal justice infrastructure. So, you know, women know that we will not get any sort of justice if we are the victims of these kinds of things. And that is a, that is a tripartite situation that is very difficult to counteract, um, especially at the grassroots level at which a lot of activists work. But nonetheless, it is possible to make social shifts. And I think that is what people are working towards so powerfully and so tirelessly and so inspiringly. Thanks, Nikki. So against this, this backdrop of apathy and almost chilling limited public attention span, what does the book uncover in terms of the role of the digital, um, both as a site of resistance, but also sometimes as a site of violence and, and with its own limitations and complications mm -hmm. in, its, in the struggle against GBV? I think your question really encapsulates the answer, you know, that the, the digital sphere in India and South Africa, as elsewhere, is a double-edged sword. I mean, we can even say triple-edged in our context, because of course, in India and South Africa, you're also dealing with the digital divide. You're also dealing with the fact that a vast number of people in these places cannot access 
online spaces at all. And so their utility will always be limited. You know, that said, keeping that in mind, digital technology has allowed for vast amounts of, of connection making, of network making, of, of community building. And this is these are very, very powerful tools for female activists, right? That cannot be undermined. They also allow South-South connections they allow us to build things with people in other locations and contexts that make our movements and our politics stronger and more thoughtful. But of course, the flip side of that is, you know, we all know what happens when you're a woman on the internet. Um, I've, I've experienced it myself. I'm sure that, you know, anyone, most, most women who've had any sort of public face online have experienced some degree of abuse. So there's that, of course, there's the fact that, you know, being publicly online leaves you open to huge amounts of misogynistic abuse that can be, unless you personally have the strength to just shunt them off, which I know, you know, a lot of us don't, I, I don't really, um, can be hugely debilitating and really impact on your capacity to be a useful organizer or a useful thinker, a useful scholar, a useful community member, because you become afraid of engaging. And of course, that is the purpose of that kind of abuse. It is to shut women up and hound them off the digital public sphere, such as it may be, to stop this kind of organizing and silence the voices that the patriarchy does not want to hear. And then, of course, there are also more kind of real world or, or offline consequences whereby your presence in the digital world can have real knock on effects for what happens to you on a day to day basis because of the way in which we are surveilled and we surveil each other. So, you know, in some contexts, women also have to be incredibly careful what they do and say online, because that also makes you vulnerable to different types of consequences. So. You know, while embracing the power of the digital for allowing new connections and new modes of spreading information, we also need to remain, I think, very cynical about its liberatory potential and to acknowledge, especially in the area that we live in now, you know, of Web 2.0, where the, the digital worlds that we use are largely owned by multinational corporations who have no qualms about allowing them to be radically misused by the white supremacist right if that will help them you know get more money and get more clicks and make you know increase their increase their influence so we do need to be careful of how we use these platforms we do need to stay aware of the fact that they are not our friends they are useful tools but any tool can be violently misused and turned against the person who's holding it certainly a triple edged sword as you put it i really like that <laughs> yeah. um so Nikki, as we're slowly coming to the end of this conversation on a somewhat more hopeful and optimistic note, and mm -hmm. especially because the book has a lot to offer in this regard, um, I was wondering if you could close us, us off with some pathways for South-South solidarity in the struggle against sexual violence that the book uncovers or gestures towards. This is a really lovely question to end on. Um, I do tend to get quite doom laden about things because of the sort of work that we've been doing. But, you know, from my, from my own personal experience, um, you know, editing this book, putting this book together during the pandemic, and of course, most of our contributors are female and found themselves with caring responsibilities for relatives or children, uh, you know, caring responsibilities for students. It was a, it was a real challenge managing to claw all of these chapters together in amongst everything that everyone was going through but nonetheless 
it made it abundantly clear how many powerful links there were between our thinking and understanding as South African feminists and the understanding of the Indian feminists that I that I found myself not ours by ours I mean mine I apologize both of my co-editors are Indian um, although one works in South Africa but yeah for me it was just such a powerful experience to see the deep similarities between the kinds of work that we're trying to do and also the deep similarities between the approaches that we take. Um, I think as feminists in the global south we you know because of these issues that we've been discussing of the kind of the, the wall of apathy and the the lack of of availability of the state it can often feel like a really thankless job you know it can often feel like we are kind of cast adrift it can often feel as though solidarity making is very difficult it can often feel as though there are not enough of us to really achieve much and what these south-south connections do is they help us to bypass all of that they help us i guess that you know, other than the practical things that we learn from each other, for me, the most important thing that the South-South community making does is help us, it, it helps us rather, it helps us to build hope. <laughs> and we forget that hope is a fundamentally important feminist tool, right? Without believing that we can actually shift things, without believing that there is a way to change all of these structural systems that we are all locked within, we would do nothing, we would achieve nothing, we would get nowhere and nothing would ever change, nothing would ever progress. So building these kinds of relations with women elsewhere in the world who are facing similar challenges and taking similar approaches to them in vastly different contexts and with vastly different meanings, what it does is it allows us all to access a kind of hope that can be quite difficult to find on a daily basis when you find yourself banging your head up against the faceless carelessness of the state and the society that you live in. And, you know, I'm, I think I'm drawing here from an interview that I did with Urvashi Butalia, who is, is an amazing um, Indian publisher, the publisher behind Zuban Books, who's been a really powerful feminist figure for a really long time. And I spoke to her when she was in Johannesburg for a series of talks, I spoke to her about these same questions and she just kept bringing me back to the issue of hope. She's like, it's very easy to just be cynical and it's very easy to just be doom laden, but we do the kind of work that we do because we do believe that things can change and we do believe that things can improve. And for women across the world, for women, you know, for, for black women, for brown women, for white women in non-Northern contexts, for women who whose struggles and whose stories are often not part of the loudest conversations around feminism. Speaking to each other can allow us to amplify our own voices and also to bypass the fact that we're not in those mainstream Northern conversations because those are not the conversations we need to be having. Speaking to each other can allow us to center and centralize our own context instead of being marginalized in a way that often feels really unhelpful. So, you know, it's also a way of developing vocabularies and modes of speech that apply specifically to our contexts that are legible to people outside our contexts, even if they don't necessarily sound that important to white feminists in Britain and America. So I, yeah, I think these conversations are hugely, hugely important and having them as part of editing this book was for me an enormous privilege. What a wonderfully powerful and enlivening note to end on. Um, thank you so much, Nikki, for taking the time to talk to us and, and for your incredible book and the new possibilities that it opens up for 
the ongoing struggle against sexual and gendered violence, especially in from and for the global south. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you, Priya. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk. Thank you.